Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Rome. I'm Emily Tampion in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 3rd of July. Welcome to this third episode of World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Emily, how are things in D.C.? Well, tomorrow is the 4th of July, our Independence Day, which our president is marking with fireworks on the National Mall and no mask requirement. So I think we could say that this celebration of the American experiment also reminds us that the results of that experiment are decidedly mixed. And how's Rome? Good grief. Rome is very hot and unusually devoid of tourists for this time of year. I'm here working on a a big feature for our New Statesman Summer Special, which is out in um, three weeks on how Italy's recovering from the peak of the pandemic here. It's very interesting seeing how many precautions are in place here. You know, people think of Italy as a fairly relaxed country, but it's far more stringent here than than it's been in Germany or in Switzerland or in many other places, including America, from what you say. You know, you have to, a lot of shops and cafes and public spaces have one-way systems, so you don't encounter people coming the other direction. They they temperature screen you at train stations. And I was on a a long-distance train journey today where everyone was issued with a mask, a seat cover, gloves... And antibacterial gel. So it's it's actually quite impressive and I think also a testament to quite how traumatic the pandemic has been here. So worth looking to Italy. Before we introduce our guest, what has been the moment of the past week that you think will go down in history, Emily? We sort of teased this last week and we can now say that the referendum in Russia has passed. Surprise! Putin will remain president until 2036 or has will be able to remain president until 2036. Over a full week of voting showed a 78% yes vote. Also, surprise, the opposition accused the government of rigging the vote. And what's your moment of the week? For me, it has to be also mentioned last in last week's episode, the passing of the Hong Kong security law by China on Tuesday, which came into effect an hour before the start of Wednesday. As we mentioned last week, uh, Wednesday, July the 1st, it was a sort of symbolically important day for Hong Kong, the anniversary of the handover in 1997. This package of measures was pushed through in a really shoddy way. You know, there was no safer Hong Kong. The details of the law weren't even fully published until it was passed. And the outcome is a huge crackdown on freedom in the city, you know, turning vague crimes like subversion and collusion into crimes worthy of life prison prison sentences. You know, Beijing can now appoint its own security personnel. It expands surveillance and closed door trials. So it is a truly historic and disastrous day 
for any sort of meaningful freedom in Hong Kong. And we have a very good piece on the New Statesman website by Jesse Lau, a Hong Konger in London, who writes very personally and forcibly about what that means for Hong Kongers, both abroad and in the city now, working out whether or not they really want to stay there. It's a really grim piece of news and I think will really shape how we see China and how we see Hong Kong for decades to come. So on that not entirely positive note, on to our guest. This week's issue of The New Statesman is a special issue exploring the UK's calamitous response to the COVID-19 outbreak. We have commentary, reporting, in-depth data features really getting into the the weeds of what went wrong in the UK and why. And we have international pieces in that. I have a column looking at why Germany did better than the UK, the reasons why that might be the case. And we also have a symposium of perspectives from outside the UK, a French politician, a New Zealand academic, a journalist in Poland and so forth, kind of giving the view from outside. And I think a particularly forceful contribution to this week's special issue is the essay by the brilliant Irish journalist Fintan O'Toole about the British government's reaction and the role that British exceptionalism and the context of Brexit played in Britain's failure to get a grip on the virus. Many listeners will be familiar with his writing in the Irish Times and elsewhere, including on an array of international political subjects, and also his recent book, Heroic Failure, Brexit and the Politics of Pain. So we're delighted to welcome Finton now onto the podcast to discuss his piece and some of the broader international themes that it refers to. Finton, thank you very much for joining us. It's a real pleasure. To start off, could you just sort of give us an overview of the arguments in your essay in this week's New Statesman, and particularly the arguments about the, the link between British exceptionalism and the way that the country's responded to the pandemic? Yeah, so uh, I suppose, first of all, it's obvious that it, it, it requires explanation as to why Britain, which has so many advantages um, going into this crisis, um, has been one of the world's worst performers in the very basic task of trying to keep its own population alive. After all, remember, there was the precious gift of time. You know, it was possible for for people in Britain and for me in Ireland, you know, to see this thing coming, you know, there's a couple of months really of lead-in time. Britain has an incredibly rich tradition and and living set of institutions in terms of science and medicine, and you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very wealthy country as well with its own central bank. It can it can it can print money. So you know, it, it ought not to be by any stretch of the imagination one of the countries that's that's. Uh, suffering worse in this pandemic. So it it has to be explained. And I think you can only explain it in terms of a mindset, or as I try to argue in the piece, an absence of mindset in a way. You know, this is a country which, of course, is, is deeply distracted by Brexit. And this is true just at the institutional level, you know, the, the 25,000 odd civil servants who are working on Brexit. But perhaps more importantly, it's it's true at the political level, where, where the political leadership is one which has one big thing on its mind and interprets then everything around the pandemic through the same kind of psychological impulses that are at work with Brexit. So it's very interesting to look back now at the moment when Boris Johnson first said the word coronavirus in public, you know, when he mentions it. It's, of course, in that big set piece speech, which is his first post-Brexit speech. And it's uh, in Greenwich 
This this was in in February at some point, wasn't it? It's early February, I think it's the third of third of February. So literally just a couple of days, you know, after Brexit has been done, as it were. <laughs> and it, but it's really interesting because he he raises the coronavirus in parenthesis in in the speech, but he raises it not as you might think as oh dear, there's this terrible thing which might disrupt all our plans and we might have to pay a lot of attention to. He raises the opposite way around, which is we, we are entering into this, this wonderful reflowering of global Britain. And there are people who are raising this issue of this coronavirus and, you know, using it as an excuse to stop the ultra free trade that Britain is going to be the champion of. So it's, it's already seen by Johnson that the coronavirus is a silly distraction from the big business of, of, of global Britain, which is, which is arising out of Brexit. And I think if you look at it, you know, that, that attitude, the refusal to pay attention to the pandemic in and of itself, you know, as a set of facts that have to be dealt with, runs through the entire British government response to the pandemic. Do, do you think it's a case of the sort of institutional capacity simply being clogged up by Brexit, that people just had their minds on other things? Or do you think it's something more? Do you think that Brexit had sort of conditioned the mindset of the British state to think that it could sort of glide over the pandemic without difficulty? I do think it's it's more the, the second than the first. So there's no doubt that the the institutional and political bandwidth, you know, is taken up with Brexit and that that certainly doesn't help. But I think the really dangerous way in which this unfolds is that it's 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 the attitudes which are at the heart of the Brexit project, really, which which play themselves out. And I think in particular, and this is really, I suppose, not any great surprise for anybody who's been watching it, but, you know, if you if you just stand back from it a bit, it's very striking the degree to which the binary mindset that works in Brexit is also applied to the coronavirus. What I mean by that is that the Brexit mindset is, is has this binary in it, isn't it? I mean, which is that Britain is either great or it's humiliated. So it's it's either top dog or it's nothing. The reason why British membership of the European Union is intolerable is that it implies that Britain's like any other country. It's a, it's 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 another one among equals of, of of Western European countries, like France, like Germany, God help us, even like Ireland. <laughs> and that's intolerable, you know, because that's not, there's somehow something unnatural about that. And therefore you have to leave the European Union. But when you apply that to the pandemic with that mindset, what you get is that it's either, the response is either world beating, it's either the best that it could possibly ever be conceived to be, or it's nothing at all. You know, what what's missing in all of this is it, what you really need when you're facing a crisis like this, which is ordinary intelligence and competence applied rationally and calmly to a problem. So what the Irish government, for example, did, and the Irish government was by no means perfect in this, but but Ireland does now have the lowest incidence of coronavirus in, in, in Europe at the moment. What the Irish government did was, was, what's everybody else doing? What's happening with this thing? What are the World Health Organization uh, suggesting we do? What can we learn from what's happened in Italy? What can we learn from what Taiwan has done? You know, it, just that sort of process of looking around and saying, let's, let's try to do the good things that have, seem to have worked for other people and not do the really bad things. Th- that's a normal mindset. 
And that's precisely what you don't see, I would suggest, with Johnson and Cummings and the, the vote leave government. You know, it's, it's that that would not be appropriate to Britain to, to simply be saying, you know, getting on the phone to Angela Merkel and saying, what, what, what are you doing in Germany? How's that working? You know, is there something we can learn from this? It, it has to be exceptional. So it, everything has to be specifically British. And you can see this with, with, you know, people might think, well, this is all very abstract, but look, look at ventilators, for example. You know, there was this huge panic and, and reasonable enough, you know, about, about getting ventilators into hospitals. Like, there, there are ventilators. They, they exist. The patents exist. The designs exist. They're manufactured. The thing to do was to scale up what already exists and try and get it, you know, more, more rapidly into hospitals for patients. No. What Johnson and, and the Tory government had to do was to say, we're going to run a special, almost like a space program to, to invent new British ways of making ventilators. And, you know, it's so this sort of self-indulgent distraction. And it, so you move from ventilators to, to hyperventilation. You know, it, it, it has to be special. It has to be unique. It has to be distinctive. It has to be British. It's sort of retrofitting the problem onto the psychological, political needs of the moment. Yes. There's so much in your piece and, and in what you just said that reminded me of the American response, right? Like why this assumption that what happened to the rest of the world wasn't going to happen to you, this refusal to look to the rest of the world to see what, what works and what doesn't. But there was a line from your piece in particular that I wanted to ask you about because it, it was basically this this refusal to have objective thinking and instead an insistence on, yeah, the, the line is actually, what matters is not objective truth, it is the power of positive thinking. And it really struck me because just this week, Trump said again that he thinks that maybe the virus will just go away, which one could say is positive thinking to the type, to the point of delusion. But I was hoping you could speak a bit more about if in writing it, you thought of, not to be very US-centric, but if you thought of the United States as well, this kind of commonality of exceptionalism and the danger of of positive thinking in both cases. Yes, indeed, it's the great irony of exceptionalism, isn't it? Of course, that it's, it's never mm-hmm. really exceptional. Even even the mindset of exceptionalism is 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 mirrored elsewhere. The nationalist populist rhetoric is always based on the idea that we are different. We are not just different, but we're better, and that things that apply to other people don't, do not apply to us. And so you see this manifest in uh, not quite in the same ways, but but certainly parallel ways by by Johnson and by Trump. A lot of this, remember, is is rooted. I mean, what what one of the things that Johnson and Trump have in common, of course, is that they both are, shall we say, mendacious. That's probably the, the most polite possible way of putting it. But you know, they have a very very deep relationship with lies, and with you know what what Kellyanne Conway famously called alternative facts. Now, alternative facts are always positive, right? They're, they're always the, the spin that you want to put on it and in power that has to become, we are fantastic, everything is great. So when you're faced with the, the coronavirus in this mindset, there is this bizarre belief somehow that simply by wishing it away, by, by adopting a positive mindset towards it, that, that will be the reality. You, you, you construct reality by being positive. So Johnson, for example, talks about, um, you know, doomsters and gloomsters as being the problem with Brexit. So, so Brexit is not an objective problem. Brexit is a problem of attitude. And if it were not for the doomsters and gloomsters who keep pointing out maybe some of the difficulties, everything would be fine. And of course, Trump, remember, 
if you go back into, um, and I, for some sins in my past life, I've, I've read a lot of Trump's books, you know, the, the, the early boosterist books, you know, The Art of the Deal and all those kind of things. But he has a passage in one of them, I can't remember exactly which one of them is, but it, he says germs are about negative thinking. They're about negativity. You know, people who don't think negatively don't get infected. You know, it, it, I mean, this is literal, you know, and, and, he, and of course his whole, his whole obsession with, with, he's a germaphobe, you know, the fact that he doesn't get infected is a sign that he's a winner. So, so really only losers and negative people are the ones who get infected. And of course, when you apply that in Trump's case to, to the virus, this also becomes a kind of recipe for, for mass killing, you know, because the, the losers are the ones who you know are 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 negative and are going to die and in a way it's their own fault isn't it you know if if only they had a more positive attitude to everything then the virus wouldn't have got them yes it reminds me what you say reminds me of the uh, barbara ehrenreich's book brightsided about the the dangers of the cult of positive thinking becoming or being taken to delusional extents and I think that's playing out in those countries. On your very interesting point about the non-exceptionalism of exceptionalist politics, the way that lots of countries think that they're unusual and different and can do their own thing. I mean, what do you think in that case set, sets the UK and the US apart? Because a lot of countries, I mean, even in Europe, you have France, for example, which has a very distinctive sense of itself, a sense that it it has a, an original and different approach to many things. What do you think sets aside the UK and the US and makes their exceptionalism so particularly dangerous in this moment? Because I think, I think there must be something more than, ex, than exceptionalism in the mix to, to explain the particular disaster of the coronavirus policy response in those countries. I think that's absolutely right. You know, nationalism is always bound up with a sense of exceptionalism. So, so to, to some degree, you know, all nation states have it. And Ireland certainly has its own versions of it. I think what sets the UK and, and, and the US apart at the moment is really, I suppose, two particular things. One is, I suppose, a notion of this exceptionalism being very much linked to an idea of greatness, which can only be expressed unilaterally. Right? So if you take the example of France, France certainly still has its kind of pomposities about its greatness, but, but has, I think, absorb the idea that France's importance is expressed through the European Union and perhaps through other international institutions. Britain obviously is is not doing that at the moment. You know, it's 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 idea that its exceptionalism will be unilaterally expressed, I think, is is very powerful. And of course, you know, Trump that's that's Trump's election program, you know, it's America first. So, so you have that, and then I think the other big thing that sets them apart, of course, is the presence at the heart of government of disruptors. You know, so Trump obviously plays off the fact that he's in power with an attempt to pretend that he's not in power. You know, that that he's still an insurgent figure who can appeal above the heads of what's supposed to be the establishment to the people and their instincts for liberation. But of course, Johnson and, and perhaps more importantly, Dominic Cummings have, have a similar kind of version of themselves, you know, particularly Cummings, who's obviously driving strategy. You know, it's, it's, it's very much the idea that you are in government to destroy government. That's very different from France, for example. You know, <laughs> the French state is still 
has still a, a very strong sense of itself. But this this internalized agenda to disrupt the state, to radically decompose in many ways the existing state, I think is is what makes the UK and and the US different. And of course, if you're in the middle of a crisis like this, disruption and the, the disruptive mindset is exactly what you do not need. The pandemic's pretty good at disruption. You know, there's there's a lot of it about. And to have people whose 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 mindset is driven by a sort of opportunistic and somewhat anarchistic attitude towards the state proves to be literally fatal in this regard. So so again, what you see all the time in Britain, it takes the form of we're going to do our own things. We're going to have our own very special app. We can't have the same app for tracing that everybody else does. We have nothing to learn from anybody else. We're going to create our new ventilators, all that kind of stuff. And of course, in in the US, it, it, it goes further, I think, with Trump, which is which is really fundamental distrust of the idea that liberty has conceived, very narrowly conceived in, in, in that sort of American right-wing tradition, is worth sacrificing at all to save the lives of people who are probably losers anyway. But they do have, they're, they're, so they're somewhat different, but they have similar effects. And, and speaking of political calculations and realities changing because of this pandemic, before we move on to the next segment, I did want to ask you, you have written what I consider to be the definitive piece on uh, Joe Biden so far in this never-ending election cycle on grief and mourning and the role that they play in Biden's pro- political persona. And in that piece, you write, can a politics of grief be adequate to a politics of grievance? And, and the answer at, at the time that you wrote that, I think, was clearly no, right? That that was not what people were looking for. Although maybe maybe that's stating things slightly incorrectly since he did indeed become the the candidate. But I was wondering if you thought that that now that we're all grieving, now that we're all mourning, if the political calculation there changes or if a politics of grief will still prove insufficient for Joe Biden. Yeah. So obviously when I wrote that piece, I had no idea what was coming. And at the time, that question about whether a politics of grief could triumph over a politics of grievance was somewhat rhetorical, really. The implied answer was, well, no, it can't. But I do think the context has changed fundamentally. And I think it's it's not just because you have the grief of individual mourning, the huge number of people who have, who have died in the US unnecessarily and who continue to die and, and unfortunately who probably will still be dying in the run-up to uh, November's election. But I think there's also probably a wider sense of mourning. There must be a, a deep sense for a lot of Americans of, of mourning the existence of a powerful state. The, the one thing Americans are used to, whether they like their state or not, is the idea that it can do almost anything when it sets its mind to it. You know, it's a sort of omnicompetent state. And to have experienced in this most visceral way the implosion of that state, the, the, it's, it's very obvious inability to do the most basic task that any state has, which is to protect its own citizens, must also be a kind of grief. And I think when you put those two things together, if Biden's able to articulate in his words and in the way he carries himself, something 
about the you know the way with which the personal grief that's kind of written into Biden's persona, you know, the, the deaths of his of his wife and child, and then the death of his son, and you know the, all those kind of that deep sadness that's just part of him. If we can link that somehow to a deeper sadness of Americans and what the place has become, I think it could be very powerful as a way of connecting emotionally with a lot of Americans. And of course, in the most grotesque way, Trump helps that because you couldn't have a starker contrast, could you, between Biden's emotional intelligence on the one side and Trump's you know, psychopathic lack of empathy. It, it, watching it from the outside, and I'm sure it feels the same, Emily, when you're there, even more so, but Trump's absolute inability to even say, isn't it terrible all these people are dying and how sad we all are. He just, he can't even articulate them, even insincerely, the most basic sympathy for people dying. Funny you say that. I've been recently sort of reading into the 1968 election in the US, with which the upcoming one is being compared for various reasons. Obviously, it wasn't it wasn't quite the same set of circumstances. But one thing that does strike me as a parallel is the the mood of mourning in the country. The sense I get was that the US went into the 1968 election campaign. Martin Luther King had been killed. Robert Kennedy had been killed. There was a sort of sense of of loss and and grief. I mean, obviously not on the scale that. America and other countries are now experiencing after the pandemic. But uh, it's another kind of interesting parallel. It, yes, it is, I think. And, and of course, it's one that, um, that in a way makes Biden for all his problematic qualities. And I think there, there are very many of them. But Biden does see himself and has placed himself politically as a sort of an heir to the Kennedys. It seemed for a long time that the only thing he really had in common with the Kennedys was the terrible personal tragedy you know that but there's something about that moment of loss i think particularly in terms of robert kennedy and you know biden has spoken about being one of the you know vast numbers of people who stood by the train tracks watching and saluting as as robert kennedy's body was taken across the country on on the train you know being there at that moment it, it may almost be one way in which biden's age has something going for it, you know, it's, it's a limitation, but there may be some sense in which Biden could be able to capture that sense of loss. And of course, the key thing then is that it's not just a wallowing in self-pity, uh, which I think is is one of the things that's part of the Brexit process and becomes very toxic, but actually becomes positive, you know, actually becomes not just a sense of what we've lost, but a sense of, of possibility to reconnect with those traditions and with uh, the kind of hope also that existed in the late 1960s. Well, that's just it, right? It's maybe the grief will see him through the campaign, but should Biden become president, it's then, well, what do you do with it, right? What do we do with our pain and our mourning and our grieving? Is it is that translated into real policy change that will make people's lives better? Or is it just that we are in this kind of shared, horrible funeral together? We will be posting links to Finton's piece and the special issue as a whole on our international Twitter account at Statesman World and on the homepage of this podcast, newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. All right. It is now time for a section that our colleagues at the New Statesman podcast like to call You Ask Us. We have picked two questions this week. First, Sam wrote in with a question on Irish politics. 
He asks, Hudson Fein's strong electoral performance provoked much worry on the part of those who feared its connection to the IRA. It has been said that the party is really controlled by shadowy actors. How true is this? Given all the controversy, what would it mean for Irish politics if Sinn Féin were to become the de facto opposition party? Fintan, from the west of Ireland, do you, how would you reply to that? It's a great question. Thank you. So this week, uh, Sinn Féin did indeed become the, the leader of the opposition. Mary Lou MacDonald, Sinn Féin leader, is now official leader of the opposition in Dublin, which, which nobody would really have predicted even a year ago. We've had a government formed from the two centre-right conservative parties, traditional centre-right parties, plus the Green Party, and that clears the way for Sinn Féin to, to, to be the voice of opposition. So I think it's important. Sinn Féin did extremely well in the general election in, in Ireland was in February. It did much better than it expected itself. We know that because they didn't stand enough candidates to, to get all the seats in Parliament that they would have got if they'd stood more. So they miscalculated themselves, even in terms of their level of support. This is why I think it's 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 important then not to overstate the extent to which the support for Sinn Féin has much to do with the IRA and the IRA's campaign 20 years ago. For most of their voters, we know that the issues on which they voted were ordinary domestic issues, particularly housing. There's a huge housing crisis in Ireland and, and healthcare. There was already a healthcare crisis um, even before the pandemic hit. So they have been very effective on, on quite a number of domestic issues, arguing from a fairly standard kind of social democratic left-wing perspective in relation to, to those issues. And, and that's actually what, what made the big breakthrough in their vote. Now, the questioner is absolutely right in the sense, of course, that you know, they're still, they're not a normal political party, right? So just in the last few days, we've had the funeral in Belfast of a guy called Bobby Story, who was one of the leading IRA enforcers uh, during the Troubles, to use the polite term. And um, the Sinn Féin royalty turned out for, for his funeral, broke social distancing guidelines, you know, were very anxious to be seen to still pay homage. So there is all of that sort of unresolved legacy of violence. Um, Sinn Féin has really not faced up at all to its own role and the role of the IRA and massive human rights abuses uh, throughout that whole period. So yes, th those concerns are certainly there, and they're the reason why nobody else really wanted to coalesce with Sinn Féin in Dublin to form a government with Sinn Féin. There's still those kind of concerns about them. But I think if you were to look at it in the longer term, I think what you would say is that in a way, Irish democracy since the foundation of the state has functioned by absorbing those who don't recognize the state. So you know, you had a civil war in 1923, and since then you've had various versions of the IRA um, challenging the state. And one by one, those brands of the IRA have, have given up violence, adopted peaceful politics, and been absorbed by the state. And actually, I think one of the reasons voters were willing to give Sinn Féin a go in February was actually that they feel that Irish democracy is strong enough now to just absorb Sinn Féin in the way that it's absorbed all of its predecessors. So I would be reasonably optimistic about this. I think Sinn Féin is irredeemably on the path to being a normal democratic political party, even though I, you know, I have a long history of strong criticism of the party and still deep concerns about its, its distortions of history, really, in terms of refusing to face up to to its own role. But mm. but I think it's a very interesting moment in, in, in Irish politics and, and certainly for the first time in almost 100 years, 
something like a left-right divide is finally emerging. It's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out over the next five years. Mm. Well, thank you for that. And apologies for my mispronunciation of Sinn Féin. We have a second question that comes to us from Liam in County Down. Liam asks, quote, Sweden is renowned within Scandinavia for its vain exceptionalism. Listeners, please remember this is Liam saying this, not me. And they too have been WHO and EU dissidents in regards to their pandemic approach. If this otherworldly outbreak hasn't been enough to humble the UK and Sweden's polities, then what hope is there, particularly given the lack of opposition in England? End quote. Jeremy, do you want to take a first stab at that question? Yeah, I mean, I see this as a bit of a parable about something that we were discussing earlier in this in, in this episode, which is the way that exceptionalism can take different forms. I've been fortunate enough to spend quite a lot of time in Sweden and to some extent speak the language. And it's it's a curious country because it is exceptionalist. You know, people fly the Swedish flag everywhere. There is, you know, the, what people refer to as the kind of the Pippi Longstocking mentality, you know, the, the the children's book character who sort of defies adult authority and does things her own way. And that kind of captures Sweden's our way or the highway sort of approach. And, you know, you can see that you can trace that through the history of Swedish social democracy. You can trace it through, you know, Sweden's distinctive sort of neutrality in World War II. You can trace it to the debates about whether or not it should join the euro in the early 2000s. You can even trace it to the the Swedish response to the the migration crisis in 2015, which was very generous. And it's a different sort of exceptionism from Britain's. In some ways, it's, I see it actually, in some ways, it's quite self-confident. Whereas I think Britain's exceptionalism is rooted to a greater extent in insecurity. Maybe maybe people who know the Swedish history and Swedish society would have a different view on that. But I think that the Swedish response to the to the pandemic, which has been to avoid severe lockdowns, there have been certain kind of advice and restrictions, but to be unusually open, which is also a very sweet, distinctively Swedish instinct, is just another version of ex- exceptionalism. But I think it's a very different beast from the British one. And the results have been similar. They both, both countries have had higher death rates and infection rates than their neighbours. But the way I see it is that Sweden's exceptionalism is rooted in its own past and in its own self-image and in its own distinctive characteristics, just as Britain's is. I tend to think that Sweden's exceptionalism can potentially sort of express itself in positive ways. I mean, the, the, the kind of the sense that Sweden has a humanitarian vocation played out in the migration crisis, for example, I think, and you know, it's been difficult for the country, but one can look at that as a sort of positive instinct. I tend to think that British exceptionalism is often more nostalgic and more closed-minded, although there too, the, the, the story is more complicated. But to recap, I think this is essentially a kind of a, a story of the different ways in which the sense that we're different and we do things our way can play out within different cultures and societies. I don't know whether, Finton, you want to kind of add to that. I mean, you, you, you're you the author of this great article on British exceptionalism. Yeah, I, I mean, of course, Sweden became for, you know, for, for a lot of right-wingers, you know, a sort of poster boy for for not locking down, you know, for, for preserving one's freedom which, for the reasons you've been talking about, was rather rather ironic. You know, <laughs> a lot of the exceptionalism in Sweden's case seemed to come from this profound belief in public consensus. You know, this idea that we don't need to be told how to behave because we all we all behave properly anyway. <laughs> you know, so in fact, it didn't come from a buccaneering, rampaging idea of um, do whatever you want. I think it probably came out of the 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 other end of that spectrum a, a self perception of um, extraordinary social discipline which of course uh, however 
turned out to be equally wrong and equally dangerous uh, and and tragic. You know, I think we always have to remind ourselves that you know the human cost of this stuff has been absolutely mm. horrendous and continues to be. And I suppose it it just leaves us with the banal necessity, you know, to 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 think profoundly about the need for international institutions, you know, and international cooperation. And in a way, the pandemic has been very good for the nation state. You know, people have looked to their nation states first and foremost to protect them. And the governments who have done very well, you know, have got a huge amount of credit for it from their own citizens. So the the sort of ultra-Euro narrative of the end of the nation state, I think, has has been wiped away by by the pandemic. But equally, on the other side, you know, the the need for an international consciousness, not not just institutions, but actually thinking internationally, you know, it, it should be bloody obvious with pandemics and with climate change and with almost everything else that we need to do that. But the countries that have done worse are the ones that, um, for whatever reason, have thought about this as, as a problem peculiar to themselves, which they could solve on their own and in their own way. And a lot of their citizens have paid the ultimate price for that. Yeah, I think I think in all of these cases, one can can say the the real lesson is the value of humility and saying what j- just wait a second and what if in the unlikeliest of cases that we don't have the right answer to this and others do. I think I think that might be something we can we can we can all take from this. Thank you to everyone who sent in questions. As we mentioned last week, we're going to gather up. Those that we don't answer week by week and do a special issue of World Review plowing through them later in the summer. Um, So do keep sending them in to us at youaskus.co.uk. As ever, for our final segment, we are going to take a look ahead at the week to come. Fintan, what in global affairs will you be watching closely next week? I think the thing that I'd be sort of trying to follow most closely really is the Polish presidential election on Sunday week. It's very easy in the part of the world that Jeremy and I inhabit anyway, you know, in, in this archipelago to think that Brexit is the primary issue facing the European Union because it's of such enormous consequence for us. Uh, uh, and of course it's important, but vastly more important for the European Union actually is, is, is the challenge posed by, by Hungary and Poland, you know, by that sort of internal revolt against the norms of liberal democracy on which the European Union is founded. Brexit is a an economic and political challenge to the EU, but Poland and Hungary are an existential challenge to it, really. And I suppose we'll we'll get a sense in the Polish presidential elections as to whether Poland's seemingly inexorable march down the road of illiberal democracy, as uh, as Viktor Orban calls it, can be stopped. I've no great expertise in Poland, but uh, you know it, it it does seem to me to be something that will resonate around Europe in terms of what that result is. Absolutely. And Jeremy, what will you be looking out for next week? I will be paying attention to the visit of the World Health Organization's inspectors to China. Um, There's been a lot of discussion about whether there should be some sort of international investigation into the causes of the pandemic. And China has pushed back quite aggressively at countries, including Australia, that have floated that idea. And at the same time, the World Health Organization, you know, a UN body, has been accused of being too kind on China and too reluctant to ask difficult questions of China, particularly early on in the outbreak. And I think both sides are trying to prove their credentials or 
prove their bona fides with this visit. The WHO to show that it's not in hock to China, China showed that it's open and that we don't need a sort of external investigation. Uh, we don't even know the date yet of this visit. We're told it will be next week at some point, but I think it will be an interesting indication of where that debate will go. So I'll be looking out for that whenever it happens. Emily, I, I think I know what you're going to be looking out for next week. Would you like to... Uh... Vincent actually teed me up nicely because on Tuesday, July 7th, here in the United States, my book, The Influence of Soros, Politics, Power, and the Struggle for an Open Society is out. It is about, as the title suggests, George Soros and his influence, Why, what that influence is, why it's so attractive to conspiracy theorists, some of whom run countries, whether ours can be an open society if we have billionaire philanthropists. Worked hard on it. I think it's good. And I hope that you will consider reading it if you are an American listener to this fine podcast. I have a less self-serving thing that I will be watching for next week, which is whether <laughs> there will be any accountability on the story of... So this week, a big story here in the United States was that US agencies had intelligence that Russia had taken out a bounty on American soldiers in Afghanistan. Trump says that he has not briefed. There's some splitting of hairs now as to whether the fact that it has been reported that intelligence officials included this in his written briefing materials, if that counts as him being briefed. I personally would uh, like to see the story continue. You know, if we're saying, well, it doesn't count the president, you, you, you can't expect the president to read, therefore it only counts if his briefer told him verbally. You know, I, I don't really think that I personally, not to opine too much, but don't think that that's good enough. And I would also just like to add, because whenever I say things like, oh, the president should be expected to read, I'm accused of having left-wing bias, that I personally do not think that expecting our commander-in-chief to feign interest in life outside his own immediate experience long enough to consume the information that's put in front of him to make a decision is a partisan preference. So that's what I'll be looking for next week. And having having read Emily's excellent book on George Soros, I can personally recommend it as a a, a great nuanced and diligently reported and well-written take on, on a subject that is often handled incredibly badly and incredibly one-sidedly. So I can, in all sincerity, say that's going to be a, a publishing event or a publishing publishing industry uh, landmark, as, as, as they put it. On that note, all that remains is for us to say thank you very much indeed to Fintan O'Toole for joining us. Thank you, Fintan. Real pleasure. And you can get Fintan's excellent book, uh, Heroic Failure, Brexit and the Politics of Pain, in all good bookshops. And from July 7th, you can also get Emily's book, The Influence of Soros, in all good book bookshops as well. If you have enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review, subscribe, and tell your friends or enemies about it. <laughs> and as a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter, which also comes out on Fridays, and follow all of our international coverage on our international homepage, newstatesman.com international. We have lots of great pieces up this week, the latest on the effective economic collapse of Lebanon, the future of Hong Kong, Poland's elections and their fallout, what to make of Putin's constitutional referendum. Very good piece on Arab-Israelis in this um, fractious time there. So do check that out. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you so much for listening and until next week. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.